that your shingles are gone and everything is good and that I've had shingles and as I say, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Uh, just one little housekeeping note on the 26th of September, the 26th of September, which is a Saturday, we are going to um, meet, but it'll be through the Los Angeles Intergroup and it'll be at 1 to 2.30 p.m. I'm going to be doing a step two uh, session, the history of step two and some of the common mistakes we make with step two. So we won't be meeting this early. We'll do it at 1 p.m. And they do not want any media. They do not want any Facebook, no internet, no nothing. It is strictly word of mouth because the last time, if you remember when John Kay did one, we had a Zoom intruder, and we are going to do everything we can do to avoid that. We're going to do everything we can do to avoid that for this one. Let's take a look at where we are. It's been two weeks since we've met in this format, because last week I was doing the thing for Region 3. And let's take a look at some of the review of this chapter. This chapter, more about alcoholism, had a working title to it for a while, more truth about alcoholism. But Bill Wilson, when he presented this to the fellowship, they were not real comfortable with that. They said that it made us sound like we're experts in the field of alcoholism, and they were not comfortable with um, that more truth about alcoholism. So he presented it back to the fellowship as more about alcoholism, and everybody was fine with that. The chapter more about alcoholism is the last of the chapters where we are going to concern ourselves with step one. No step has more pages dedicated to it than step number one. And step number one, for those who are not familiar, is the doctor's opinion, chapters one, two, and three. Just for the sake of continuing, chapter four is step two, chapter five is step three and four, chapter six is steps five through 11, and chapter seven is step 12. The chapter more about alcoholism takes its tap root from a lot of the information in a book written in 1930 by a man named Richard Peabody. Richard Peabody was an alcoholic and he wrote a book in 1930 and the book's title was The Common Sense of Drinking. And in this book, he posed that alcoholism was, it had three characteristics, three characteristics that it is a permanent condition, that it is a progressive decision, a progressive disease, sorry, not decision, progressive disease, and it is also a fatal disease, that it is permanent, progressive, and fatal. The four books that went into this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that had the most influence are the book of James from the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. And The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. 
Peabody died in 1936 of his own alcoholism. But what he said did not come up to or include a spiritual remedy. He believed, Peabody did, without going into the whole thing, that alcoholism could only be dealt with through a change in lifestyle, maybe getting a better job, maybe hanging around with more successful people, trying to change your attitude. And if there's anything we know is that none of those things worked. And as I say, in 1936, Richard Peabody, just one year after AA was founded, uh, while the big book was being written, it was, it was written in 36 and, or 37 and 38, published on April the 10th, 1939, uh, he died of his own alcoholism. Now, what he left us with, though, were some very, very basic truths. That we, that the idea that somehow, someday, he, meaning we, will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every normal drink, abnormal drinker. Many pursue this to the gates of insanity or death. And every one of the people on the line here, I'm gonna venture a guess, every one of you have cried tears over somebody that you love that would not, could not put their substance of no choice down. Some of you have buried alcoholics, some of you have buried compulsive overeaters, drug addicts, love addicts, sex addicts, gamblers. It doesn't matter what the drug is. The fact of the matter is that unless one has a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, one is not going to be able to beat this on any type of human level. It's just not possible. It is not going to happen. Not going to happen at all whatsoever. So let's take a look at Peabody and let's take a look at what we've established here, that the disease is permanent, the disease is progressive, and the disease is fatal. So let's take a look at where we are. We're on page 35. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna take a very in-depth look at a friend that we're gonna call Jim. Now Jim comes from, the story of Jim comes from somebody who was actually an early member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and his real name was Ralph Furlong. Just like in a horse race, they have furlongs. His name was Ralph Furlong, and he wrote one of the stories that went into the very first edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the story that Ralph Furlong wrote for the very first edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is um, called Another Prodigal Son. And the first edition was the only edition that it appeared in, but Another Prodigal Son is the story that has come from the person, the real life person that we're going to study about this morning, only for the big book purposes, they called him Jim. Now let's take a look with these things in mind. Let's take a look at the permanent nature of the disease. Let's take a look at the progressive nature of the disease. And fortunately, we're not going to have to look at the fatal nature of the disease as we did with the man of 30. But let's take a look at Jim. I'm in the, for those who want to follow, I'm in the middle of page 35, the paragraph beginning, our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family, 
he inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. Now, let's take a look at that. You see, one of the things that both qualifies me to be in this program and what bothers me about my history is I weighed over 700 pounds. And sometimes people come into this program and they might think that they have to weigh 700s, 500 pounds to be compulsive overeaters. And really, nothing could be further from the truth. There are people on this, I don't know if they're on this line, I don't have the, the wherewithal to go searching, but I know somebody on this line who's never weighed anything close to 200 pounds in her life. If you saw her, you would think she was a movie star. That's how beautiful and attractive she is. And I'm thinking of another person that would fit in the same category. And these two ladies are very dear friends of mine, and they are not compulsive overeaters who weighed a lot of, uh, weighed a lot. They didn't get to be obese, but they were anorexics and bulimics. So we want to mention that because not everybody fits into the same can of coffee. Not everybody fits into the same description. There are those among us on the line today that are anorexics. They get a charge. They get an effect from not eating. They get the same effect from not eating that I get from eating Oreo cookies. Now, there are also, <clears throat> excuse me, <sighs> there are also people on this line and who may be listening on the recording who are also um, bulimic. They, they get a charge out of eating large quantities of food. And then after they eat large quantities of food, they will purge that out. The number one way is through regurgitation. The number two way is through exercise bulimia. I have a friend of mine who lives in a very mountainous state. And if you saw her, you'd think she was a movie star. That's how attractive she is. She not only looks good on the outside, she is an amazing human being on the inside. And I'm very, very glad that she is my friend. But if you looked at her, you'd never know that she was a compulsive overeater. And another friend of mine, as I told you, lives in Northern California. Same exact description. These are gutter, bottom of the barrel, back alley, uh, dumpster diving, compulsive overeaters, they just don't present that way when you look at them. Uh, this one particular person lives in a mountainous state and she would eat massive quantities of food and then she would go on a run and she would go to the gym for six and seven, eight hours at a time, injuring her muscles, her ligaments, her skeletal system. She would injure herself and she would purge that food out through massive amounts of exercise. So the reason that I'm bringing that out is it's very important to remember that when we speak of alcoholics, when we speak of compulsive overeaters, we all have the same thing. We cannot eat or drink like other people. We can't. And the obsession is that someday we'll be able to do that but we don't all express the disease in exactly the same way. So I wanna bring that out every time we get together because I think it's important and hopefully you think it's important too. 
So it's very, very vital for us to remember we're different from normal people. And in some ways, how we express the disease, we're different from each other as well. So it's very important. Okay, let's take a look back to Jim. Everything's looking good. He's checking all the boxes, right? He's got a great family. He's got this great, you know, business that he inherited from his dad, blah, blah, blah. He did no drinking till he was 35 years of age. You know, I started eating right out of the box. I was an infant and my mother said I would be inconsolable unless she gave me chocolate, unless she gave me certain foods, unless she fed me, I would become inconsolable as an infant even before I had language. Well, Jim, he's the other side of the coin. He's what we call an adult onset. An adult onset means they don't really display any of the characteristics of it until they're older than some of us are. And sometimes with food, because it's a more primary addiction and because we're exposed to food as infants, we can express this disease at a much earlier age. But with alcohol, with drugs, sometimes people don't get started until way later in life. I have one story. Clancy Immeslin told me this story. Clancy Immeslin is the senior member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's, he's the only one left that we know of that actually spent quite a bit of time with Bill Wilson. He spent time with Lois Wilson. And Clancy lives in Los Angeles, California. Bless his heart, he's, 90, he's close to 90 years old. And Clancy Immeslin is a guy who came to the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club quite a number of times. And I'm lucky enough to be a member of the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. So I got to hear him. And this is a story that he tells. And you can hear him tell this on some of his podcasts. There was a woman who was a very, very, very strict Southern Baptist very strict Southern Baptist, never had a touch of liquor in her, in her entire life. She was 80 years old and she had some sort of an illness where she had been hospitalized for a period of time. And when she was in, when she was in the hospital, the doctor told her three adult children <clears throat> that when she goes to drink her milk at the end of the day, it would help her sleep if they would put some whiskey in the milk. So for a couple of days, they're putting whiskey in the milk and grandma and mama is just sleeping like a baby. She never had a drink of liquor before this. She's never been involved with liquor. She doesn't, nothing about this at all. Day number four, day number four, she's uh, home and some people who were there to kind of keep an eye on here hear her, she's got her cane, and she's rummaging through the kitchen. And she's rummaging through the kitchen because she's looking for that milk. She wants a drink of that milk. She's gotta have some of that milk. And she died of her own alcoholism three years later at the age of 83. She finally got her first snootful of liquor at age 80, and within three years of her first taste of alcohol, she was dead from her own alcoholism. And when she died, it was not a very pretty picture. She went drunk and she stayed drunk for 99% 
of her last three years on planet Earth. Southern Baptist, no matter what church, no matter what, didn't matter. She had her first snoot full of liquor and she wasn't gonna let it go. She wanted some of that milk and one of the kids or one of the grandkids spilled the beans that they were putting whiskey in it. She had some whiskey and she was off to the races and within three years at age 83, they buried her drunk. So he's 35 years old, never had liquor in his life, did no drinking. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. Now, when, he, when we say he had to be committed, please divorce yourself from the antiseptic idea of a treatment center or a modern day hospital. When we see the word asylum, it is not a very kind place. In Chicago, they have a place called Dunning. It's at Irving Park in Narragansett. Now it's not called that anymore. The neighborhood is called Dunning, but the, the hospital is called Reed Mental Health Center. And there were, there were decades that they would treat these people with such cruelty that some of their upper echelon in the 70s were prosecuted. They were prosecuted for cruelty and they showed where they would lock these people up and they would, they would put them in steam baths for hours and hours at a time and, and make them sleep and oh, it was just horrible. So when you see this word asylum, do not think of the antiseptic treatment center or hospital that you have in your mind. Think of a place where there's bars on the window, you can't get out, and you are not treated very humanely some of the time. He came into contact with us. Who's us? The early members of AA, the Oxford Groupers and the early members of AA. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. What did they tell him? What did they know of alcoholism? What they knew of alcoholism is that it is a physical allergy and a twist of the mind. A physical allergy means you cannot consume liquor without triggering this allergic reaction. What do we mean when we say an allergic reaction? We mean that the reaction is a physical reaction that is both adverse, which means it's harmful, and abnormal, which means 90% of the people do not react that way. So the allergy means it is adverse and abnormal. It is the craving that we set ourselves up with when we eat certain foods or certain ingredients of foods, we actually set ourselves up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. I wanted the first Oreo cookie I ate, I needed the second Oreo cookie I ate, and I would kill you to get to the third Oreo cookie that I ate. And by the time I got to the third Oreo cookie, I was going to eat every Oreo cookie, every candy bar, every chips ahoy, every uh, potato chip, every God knows what, that I could get my hands on. In a normal person's body, the more they eat, the less food they want. In, a, in my body, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. And the reason that I'm going over this is because not only do I know for a fact that there's at least eight or nine of you that have never been on this line before, but I don't think it really hurts us to remind ourselves, what were they telling him? 
What else did they tell him besides about the physical allergy? They told him that he has a mind that is different from other people, that his mind, when fettered with the pain of the buildup of human emotions, that he would look to alcohol as a solution, that alcohol was the solution to Jim's problem. And that once that alcohol was in his system, for about eight or nine seconds, he would feel what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. What is the, what is the effect? Sorry, it's only about 150 degrees here. No, it's 99 degrees here at 1020. Vegas, Mary. It's going to be 117 today. Okay. Now, let's take a look that he has this information. It is a twist of the mind, and it is an allergy of the body. And then it goes on to say, and the answer we had found. So if telling him about the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body, what step is that? That's right, very good. Step number one, I know how to say that in Italian now. I've done the Italian thing and we're gonna do it again in October for those of you who wanna do it, it's free. But I know how to say step one in Italian. It's passo primo, passo prima is step one in Italian. Pretty good for a Jewish kid from Albany Street in Chicago, huh? Passo prima, step number one. Okay, so he, and he made a beginning so if he, if, if he knows the answer that we had found, that's step number two. That's step number two. No, I don't know how to say two in Italian. I have to ask my friend Barbara. But they told him about step one. They told him about step two. Now it says, and that's the answer they had found. Now what it says is he made a beginning. What is a beginning? Step three is a beginning. Step three is described as a beginning and a decision. So he's worked one, two, and three. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. Boy, I gotta tell you something. <clears throat> There's a little tiny company that's located in Scottsdale, Arizona called Radio Services LLC. I own the company. I started the company. I own the company, but I'll be damned if I want to come to work here as a salesman if somebody else owned it besides me. No way I'm doing that. I'd rather shovel whatever out there in the street. I'm not coming to work here as a salesman for somebody else. So you can see that through his alcoholism, he has suffered consequences. He lost his business. It says he, as he began to work as a salesman for the business, he had lost through drinking. Now, you would think that if he lost his business and was locked up in an asylum, this may scare him sober for a while. Well, let's let him tell you. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. How does a person enlarge their spiritual life after they've done steps one, two and three. There's only one way that I know of to enlarge your spiritual life after you've done steps one, two, and three, and that is to do four through 12 every single day for the rest of your life. Four through 12. 
How do you do four through 12 every day? By doing four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, but then living in 10, 11, and 12. In 10, 11, and 12, it'll bring you back to four through 12 every day. So he didn't do that. He stopped. And you will hear a lot of people on the line in vision or in your conversations with people that they say they did the one, two, three waltz. When you do the one, two, three waltz, what you're really doing is nothing. You're really doing nothing. Because unless you're doing step four, you really never took step three. Step three is merely a decision to do what? Step three is a decision to do four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. That's what step three really is. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. In other words, he's trying to diet. And we've all dieted, right? We've all gone on the diet. But he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid successions. On each of these occasions, we worked with him. We is going to be a very, very important little word here. Because what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to reinforce and dispel a myth that's in AA, that's in OA reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. There isn't one of the people here on this line that hasn't suffered tremendous humiliation, tremendous pain, tremendous, tremendous consequence to your eating. Every single one of us, every single one of us has had massive, massive consequence to your eating or lack of eating. Because how do I know that? Because you're on the line. You're here. You didn't come here because you were on a roll. You didn't come here because things went well for you. You didn't come here because the eating was working for you, but you figured you wanted to meet some new people and hear some interesting stories, so you decided to join Overeaters Anonymous. It doesn't work like that, Charlie Brown. It just doesn't. <sighs> there is nothing about this disease that is pretty. So he gets drunk again, top of 36, we asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. Well, where were you Monday? Not so good about Mondays, right? The boss probably said, by the way, Jim, where were you yesterday on Tuesday morning? He probably said, where the hell were you, young man? He says, I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Anger, fear, dishonesty, selfishness. He's got the buildup of emotion. The, the, the emotions are building. Selfishness. This whole thing didn't stick to his script. The dishonesty. These people didn't come and take away his business. He lost it through his drinking, through his own disease, through his own, his own action. He's got resentment. He resents the situation and the people in it. 
and he's got fear. What's the fear? The fear is if I lost this, what's coming next? So he's got a grand slam going on here, but nothing serious. I had a few words with the boss, nothing serious. He's kind of holding it in, the buildup of human emotion. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects, see one of my prospects for a car. In other words, he's got to get out of the showroom. He can't look at these people anymore. He's going to escape from these people. So he thinks, where can he go? He's going to drive to the country. I'm the way I felt hungry. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. Now, remember in Bill's story, he says he went into a cafe to telephone. They didn't have a phone at the clothing store. They didn't have a phone at the barber shop. They didn't have a phone at the candy store. They didn't have a phone at the florist or the undertaker or the gas station. No, Bill has to go into a cafe where they have a phone, setting himself up to get drunk. This guy's got to go into a bar. He's got to go into a roadside place where they have a bar. I guarantee you they had places that didn't have a bar. He didn't choose those. He knew in the back of his mind he was going to get drunk. I had no intention of drinking. Yeah, my left foot. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. Now what is he doing? He's justifying his behavior. He's justifying what he's doing. He's justifying where he is. And how many of us have justified the fact that we're just going to eat pizza this one day? We're just going to eat whatever, McDonald's or, or whatever it is you like to eat, McDonald's franchise. You're justifying it. You're, you're selling yourself on the idea. And every time I have to sell myself on the idea of what I'm going to do, that means it's my will rather than God's will. Because when I'm doing God's will, I don't have to justify it in my mind. It is an easy transition. I'm going to take a 10-step call. I don't have to justify that in my mind. I don't have to sell myself on the idea. And I get asked this all the time. How do you tell the difference between your will and God's will? When it's my will, I have to do a sales job. I have to shtick myself. I have to give myself shtick why I'm doing this. When it's God's will, it just comes naturally. It flows. It just flows downstream. It's easy. The decision is comfortable. The decision is easy. The decision just makes perfect sense. It's not an easy decision to go out and think I'm going to eat French fries or I'm going to eat whatever it is I'm going to eat. I don't know, uh, uh, Oreo cookies. I'm going to worry about who's going to see me in the store. I'm going to worry about how am I going to check out? How am I going to get out of the store with these Oreo cookies? When I go in there to buy my eggs or I go in there to buy my blueberries or my peaches or whatever, very, very simple decision. I don't worry about it. I don't have to think about it. God's will is downstream. My will is upstream. I'm forcing my way back up the current. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. 
Still no problem, right? Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Unless he's a member of the not yet invented Overeaters Anonymous, it's not a problem. But two sandwiches and two glasses of milk, I better, I have to call my sponsor, but he's not a compulsive overeater, so we'll let that go. But if I'm ordering two sandwiches, that's something I better look at. Suddenly, right now, suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Again, he's justifying what he's doing. He's justifying it. He's selling himself on this idea. How many of you have ever, ever had to sell yourself on doing what your sponsor told you to do, but you have to sell yourself on disobeying your sponsor? How many of you have to sell yourself on the idea of helping someone else? No, but you have to sell yourself on the idea of not doing your step work, of not doing what's expected of you. I vaguely sense I was not being any too smart. Now notice that this is all in Italian, italics. Uh, I almost said it's all in Italian. It's all in italics and that costs them more money. He wants us to pay attention, Bill Wilson does. But felt reassured I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well, I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Now. Before we leave these two paragraphs, let's take a look at something that's very, very subtle that most sponsors cannot point out because they don't know it, and that's fine. That's why we're here is to teach you how to be better sponsors, better, better members of OA. Now, we're told that the disease is a disease of self and that most of the working of the steps centers around two results, a lowering of the ego and the lowering of the level of these emotions by eliminating the fear, shame, resentment, guilt, remorse, jealousies, things like that. By lowering these, these ego and lowering these emotions, it makes us free to not eat. 19 times in the very first paragraph of this, of this page, the pronoun I is used. Seven times in the second paragraph, the pronoun I is used. In the first two paragraphs of this page, the pronoun I will appear 26 times. Now, the 26 times in two paragraphs that the pronoun I is used is very important so we can point out how self-obsessed he was at this time. Never in any of these decisions, and we see the progression of the disease. We see it from the time he walks in, he's got no intention of drinking, and then the disease takes him over, right? There's no mention of anyone else. How's this going to affect my wife? Remember, his family was reassembled. How's this going to affect my kids? How's this going to do? How's this going to help me sell a car? If I'm sitting here drunk, now I missed work yesterday, I wasn't there. It's Tuesday, now I'm gonna get drunk. I'm certainly not gonna be much good to anybody sitting here in a cafe drunk. How's this gonna help my, um, how's this gonna help my program, not my program, how's this gonna help my business? Well, the answer is it's not going to help your business. So cerebral reasoning has left him. 
Cerebral reasoning is not a part of this disease. Cerebral reasoning is not something that comes into play. We cannot think our way out of the way of this disease. It cannot be done. If it could be done, then we would have done it when we were children. The only way for me to get out of the way of the tank that is this disease, the destructive tank, is to work the steps and let God do the rest. That is the only way for me to get out of this disease is to do the steps. 26 times in the first two paragraphs of this page, the pronoun I will appear. Now let's take a look. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. Somebody's unmuted there, Maria, I think. Always caused him. Eating always caused me problems. There was never a time when eating was okay. There was never a time when it went without consequence. Every single time I went out on a binge, it was destructive to my life. And here he had much knowledge of him and always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet his reasons for drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. And what part of the disease aids and abets that more than just about anything is the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. The trusty sidekick of the mental twist is the mental blank spot. We cannot bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of what this disease did to us. We can only focus in on what the food does for us. We cannot focus in on what the food is doing to us. If we had memory of what the food did to us, that would be one thing. Many of you, I bet, have been late for an appointment. At some point in your life, you were late for something. You got delayed, whatever it was. You don't drive your car 150 miles. Let's just assume your car went that fast. It probably doesn't. But you don't drive your car 150 miles an hour down the street. Why not? If you're late for an appointment, you drive your car 150 miles an hour down the street, and then maybe you get there on time, right? But you fear the consequences of doing that. You could kill yourself. You could kill someone else. You could destroy your property. You could destroy someone else's property. The police are going to ticket you. You're going to have to go to court. You're going to have hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of fines on the ticket for speeding and reckless driving. Your insurance is going to go up. So you can bring with sufficient force the consequences of, of driving 150 miles an hour. So you accept the fact that you're late, maybe you call ahead, you beg for mercy, but you don't drive your car 150 miles an hour down the street because you fear the consequences. Yet in that car, in that car, you may be eating Oreo cookies. You may be eating a Kit Kat bar. You may be looking down the business end of a damn Milky Way bar that's cocked and pointed right to you. That Milky Way bar will destroy you. 
and that Milky Way bar will do things to you you wouldn't do to your worst enemy, yet there you are voraciously shoving it down your mouth. You can't get it in there fast enough. Yeah, this is the stuff that's gonna destroy my life. Oh yeah, let's get this down my gut. Our actions make no sense because people do not understand what that Milky Way bar is doing for you. They only see what that Milky Way bar is doing to you. You only see what it's doing for you. You are blind in that moment to what it's doing to you. And if you think about the consequences at all, you wave your hand, you have the efforts, and you shove it down your throat anyway because you can't help yourself at that point. That's this disease in its active form that it is a disease of denial, that it is a disease of absolute dishonesty to yourself. Yeah, this Milky Way bar is pointed at me and it's cocked and it's pointed right at my head and it's gonna kill me. Instead of throwing it out, instead of getting rid of it, I eat it. What's the most intimate relationship there is? Is it sex? No. Is it love? No. I take a substance, let's just use my pen because I don't have any Milky Way bars here. I'm gonna take this pen, I'm not really gonna do it, but let's just assume, I'm gonna make it part of my body. I'm gonna take it inside me. There's nothing more intimate than that. You can't get more intimate than that. I see this thing, I'm gonna make it part of my body. I'm gonna take it inside of me. Now there's a word for that. Oh, let me let the big book tell you what that word is, because I want it to come from the big book, not from me. Top of 37. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. We call it plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? This is a form of lunacy. Lunacy comes from the word luna, moon, and the moon is thought to be the source of insanity by the ancients. Lunacy, removed from reality. Psychotic delusional, removed from reality. You are detached at this moment. You are doing something that is absolutely insane. You are taking a substance which has driven you out of the ownership position of your business, that has fragmented your family, that has hurt your wife and children beyond repair, that has caused you no, um, no, 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 amount of shame and guilt and fear, and yet there you are taking this substance and putting it inside of you. What could be more insane? We see, we bring it into ourselves, and we are surprised that for the 7,393rd time, this substance has not worked. We're shocked. We can't believe that we did this again. And here's the saddest of the parts. Without God, 
without the steps, without this program, you will do it again and more and again and more and again and more until you are dead. Because you are biologically pre-programmed as a compulsive overeater to either eat yourself to death, or in the case of my friend that lives in a mountainous state, and my other friend who lives in Northern California, you are pre-programmed to starve yourself to death. That is the reality of this situation. It is permanent. It is progressive. It is fatal. It is permanent, progressive, and fatal. The only solution you have is from a power greater than yourself. There is no earthly explanation as to why you have this disease. There is no earthly solution to it. You didn't get this because of your mother. You didn't get this because of your dad. You didn't get this because of your next door neighbor. You got this because you got this. My favorite title of any story, time out. My favorite title of any story in the big book is because you're an, I'm an alcoholic. What title could be better than that? Dr. Bob's Nightmare is obviously my favorite because I love Dr. Bob and I love Bill Dotson and all the old timers, but okay. But because I'm an alcoholic, that says it all. It's beautiful. It's delicious. Page 37. You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. How true is that? We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always, not sometimes, not most of the time, always, watch Bill's words, there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insane, trivial excuse for taking the first drink, like it's a day that ends in a Y, or it's a month that has a vowel in it. Or, or whatever, or water's wet. Those are beautiful reasons to eat myself to death, right? Those are fantastic reasons to kill myself by looking down the business end of a damn Milky Way bar, right? Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Remember the scenario that we painted with driving your car down the street at 150 miles an hour. You don't do that because you're afraid of the consequences. But you'll eat chips ahoy because you're not afraid of the consequences. That's the difference. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. We're a very baffled lot. Once this disease takes hold, we become a baffled lot. We do not understand why we do what we do. We just understand that we, we had to do it or the top of our head would have blown off because the buildup of emotions was too much for us to bear. In the moment, it was the only decision. In the moment, the food won out because it was a step up from where you were. It was a step up from what you were feeling. It was a step up from the intenable, searing pain of not eating. 
And not eating means I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. Throw in jealous, scared to death, lustful, fearful, guilt, shame, remorse. All these other various emotions are overtaking me. And the one thing my brain knows is that fried chicken or Fritos or, or ice cream or whatever it is, is going to take that feeling away. I don't even think in terms, oh, this is going to take the feeling away. I don't even associate that stuff. I just know in my mind, I'm feeling bad and then I want ice cream. I don't enjoy that whole thing until I was in program. While I was in the disease, the fact that I was feeling bad, or I may not even have been aware that I was feeling bad, and eating ice cream were not joined. They were not sequential in my mind yet. I had to learn that by coming in. Middle of 37, in some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. These are emotions that are very, very painful, very painful. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. Now, the key word here is always happened. It doesn't sometimes happen. I didn't get diarrhea just some of the times that I would binge my brains out. I didn't puke my head off some of the times when I would binge my brains out. I got diarrhea every single time I went crazy. I was puking my guts out every single time I went crazy. I was pissing in my pants every single time I went crazy. I was crapping in my pants every single time I went crazy. I got fatter every time I went crazy. My clothes didn't fit so good every time I went crazy. The girls rejected me every single time I went crazy. And I could go on and on and on. I broke more furniture when I went crazy. I got stuck in more cars. I was further removed from being able to go to a movie because I couldn't fit in the seat. I was further removed from riding in some cars because I couldn't fit in them and I couldn't get out of them. Always, the word always is the key. The word always. And yet we try to find that binge, try to find that thing that substance maybe that we can eat or binge on, that maybe this time it won't be so bad. Maybe this time it will be okay. And guess what? It never is. It never is. I spit on the screen here. That's why I'm doing it. It never is. We now see, <coughs> excuse me, that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was very little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. We didn't want to suffer those consequences, did we? And I've said this before, and only in the 91 of you that are with us now can I say this and be understood. Guys, I have eaten railroad cars full of Doritos to kill the pain and the shame and the horrible guilt that I felt from eating railroad cars full of Doritos. I have eaten to kill the pain of eating. I have eaten to kill the pain of breaking furniture. I have eaten to kill the pain that no girl wanted to go out with me. I have eaten to kill the pain that at every level of life I was rejected, that at every level of life I was existentially incorrect 
because when you are fat, when you are obese, when you are morbidly obese to that extreme, nothing you say has any merit. Nothing you do has any merit. You are wrong all over the place and being wrong, being stupid. If you were smart, you wouldn't be fat. You are existentially incorrect. And this is what I lived with for decades and decades of my life. And this is why it breaks my heart to see children, children that are 15 and 20 years old, that are 300 pounds. I see little kids going in the store with their parents. They can't shove the candy fast enough. They're causing a scene with their parents because they want candy bars or they want potato chips or whatever the hell it is that they want. And the parents are giving in to them and the parents are morbidly obese and the kids are morbidly obese. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my spirit to see it. And I just, I have everything I can do not to cry. And I have every ounce of my being is in shock because I know the hell that these kids are going to be going through. I know the hell that these kids are going to suffer. And there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. The only thing I can do is recover, recover, and recover. It is a merciless world to the obese. It is a merciless world to the child or adult that is afflicted with this addiction. And when I see it, I just want to cry. Now, I want to bring something to our attention because I want you to, to realize what's going on here. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to drop my sponsee even though he's binged 82 times because it says in the big book that I don't have to. And it says on page 35, it says, we worked with him. We told him and they didn't drop him. But what you have to understand is we means more than one person. It doesn't say I worked with him. It says we worked with him. And what they did with these guys that were constantly drinking is, okay, Bill Wilson couldn't get him sober. Let's give him to Jimmy Burwell. Jimmy Burwell couldn't get him sober. Let's give him to Fitz Mayo. Fitz Mayo couldn't get him sober. Let's give him to Hank Parkhurst. So you get the picture. That's why it says we. The one person didn't keep sponsoring him through all these various binges. They would pass him to, from person to person to person. And it was very, very, it's very important to make note of that so you understand that the big book is consistent, yet some people will say, I don't have to drop Joe even though he's binged 83,000 times because it says in the big book, we kept working with him. We is different than I. We means more than one of us. And they would pass him from person to person to person. Now let's again, as we proceed here, we're going to look at one of the quintessential stories in the big book. It's not that long, it's the story of the jaywalker. But before we begin the jaywalker, I want you to remember to look for the, I'll help point it out, but I want you to remember it too. Let's look at the progressive nature of the illness in everything we read. As we move from sentence to sentence, we're going to see that the disease is permanent and progressive 
and fatal, but let's just look primarily at permanent and progressive for right now. Bottom of 37, quintessential story. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible. The word incomprehensible means you cannot comprehend it in your mind. My weight was incomprehensible. What I was doing to myself was incomprehensible. I was emasculated by this disease. I was dragged through unbelievable shame, unbelievable consequences of this disease. My life was ransacked. I begged God for death every day of my adult life until I got into recovery. I did not want to live in this world. I saw no reason to live in this world. I knew I couldn't live with the food and I knew I couldn't live without the food. So what was the point? The mere fact that I'm alive at 66 years of age is astounding to me and to many of my good friends because no one, including doctors, no one would have believed it. With a passion, with respect to the, our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. In other words, he's an adrenaline junkie. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap, having queer ideas of fun. Queer doesn't mean anything sexually here. It just means unusual. Luck, 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 luck then deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. You're seeing the progression of the disease. He has a lot of fun. He's skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. Now he's getting slightly injured several times. Presently, he's hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Progression. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. Progression. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. Progression. So you see in this illustration how the disease gets worse and worse and worse over time. And through the years, this conduct continues accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work progression. His wife gets a divorce, progression. And he is held up to ridicule, progression. I know I keep saying the same thing, but I want you to see it. I want you to know it. And I want you to sponsor it. And I want you to teach it because the disease gets worse and worse over time. You will never get this program absorbing spiritual information. You will only get this program transmitting spiritual information. And if you haven't got these facts, it becomes a little harder to transmit that information. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. In other words, he goes to the diet center, he goes to the gym, whatever it is we've done. He shuts himself off in an asylum hoping to mend his ways, but the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine which breaks his back, progression. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? This is the progression of the disease, that no matter how hard the jaywalker tries to get this idea out of his head, it gets worse and worse and worse. 
the disease never stays the same. Well, here's something that's very encouraging. As I work my program harder and harder because the disease is progressive, my recovery gets better and better as time goes on. My recovery is richer and deeper today than it was 20 years ago. My recovery is richer and deeper today than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So you see where we're going with this. As the disease progresses, you have to do more and more and more. And this is one of the reasons that people continue to relapse in program. They want to get to a level of activity and they want to stop. They're, they have young kids or they have a full-time job or they have to spit on the sidewalk or whatever it is. So they have their... They have their several people that they talk to every day, and that's as far in as they're going. Here's, the, here's what I'm going to tell you. Every single day that you wake up, every single day that you wake up, three things have happened. Three things have happened. Number one, you got older, which means you have less and less to fend off the effects of this illness. Number two, the disease got worse. So every single day of my life, I have to find ways to do more and more and more for others' recovery. And I must constantly be thinking of others and how I can meet their needs. We cannot play the Good Samaritan once in a while. We have to be that Good Samaritan every day. That means that I have to remember that my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. That means that I have to remember that faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others, he would surely drink again, and with us to drink is to die. With us it is just like that. Need I go on? The book from one end to the other tells me what I need to do. I need to teach this to others as it had been taught to me. I will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. I will get this program by transmitting spiritual information. And that needs to be clear. And, that, and I'm sick and tired of hearing people call me on the phone that are scared to sponsor. I'd be scared not to. My friend in New Jersey says, I would be scared not to sponsor because the results are not up to you. We're not in the results business. But if I'm working an 11-step program, I'm not going to recover. I'm either in or I'm out. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning that you'd be willing to go to any length to gain mastery over alcohol. Remember that you said you would go to any length to do this. If you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Do I need to give you more examples of that? I hope I don't. Every single day. And the third thing that happens every time I wake up in the morning is things are changing. Now, let me ask you for, for this. One year ago today, did any of you know what coronavirus was? I doubt it. Six months ago, did you think, hey, there won't be 
a football season this year for college football. Hey, I bet you the economy, although it's been going great guns, I bet you the economy is going to collapse. Did any of you see this coming? I doubt it. And there are changes and have been changes in your life and in my life that no one saw coming 10 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, on August the 13th, I walked out of my wife's house on August the 13th, 2010, I walked out of that house and my daughter hasn't spoken a word to me since. I didn't want the divorce. I didn't want to break up a family. I didn't want this. I tried to talk her out of it. I did everything I could do to talk her out of it. I couldn't do it. Three years ago, I was going with a girl that lives, lived in, at that time, and still does now, in Colorado. Three years ago, I was going with a girl, and we had a beautiful relationship that I couldn't, I couldn't make happen because she kept breaking up with me. I love her. I wanted to stay with her. I wanted to be with her. She wasn't, she wasn't going to hear of it. Things are changing. Things are happening every day, which are challenging to one's recovery, which make one unsettled. We get older. Our disease is progressing. Things are changing. These are constants for which there is no remedy except to work these steps as if your life depended upon it, because it does. It is very, very important that we keep in mind this progression. That's why I point it out. That's why I'm talking about it now. That's why I keep, I keep harping on this, because the disease demands more and more activity in the area of recovery. And unless we do more and more, we cannot expect to keep that recovery. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I must expand my horizons. I must expand my horizons or I will die in this illness. 38, and we're gonna be done here in a minute. You may think, page 38, you may think our illustration too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit that if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? If I substituted food for jaywalking, your behavior is as incredible as incredible can get. It is insane. Most of you are very intelligent people. Most of you have accomplished great things. I, I don't have the time to sit uh, and, and, and look through here. Some of you I know, some of you I'm not real familiar with, but the bottom line is you've accomplished unbelievable things in your life, but there's two things you can't do. You cannot control the amount of ice cream you eat once you start eating ice cream because of the allergy. And you cannot keep from eating ice cream now that you want to. Can't do it. 
because you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that makes you different from other people. And the fact that you are different from other people is something that has to be in the forefront of my mind, your mind. And how do you keep it in the forefront of your mind? Not by trying to memorize it, by teaching it to others. I'm gonna say this again. You will never learn the program by absorbing spiritual information. You will learn the program by transmitting spiritual information. Who is probably getting the most benefit of today? Me. Me. Now, let's take a look at this next paragraph, and then we'll be done for the day. Actually, uh, no, let's not. Let's not. What we're going to do right now, because this is a very natural stopping point, is we're going to pick this up on 38. We're going to pick this up next week, because this is a very natural stopping point here. What I would like to do now.